Welcome, welcome, welcome to Chromatic Distortion with Corey Caesar. The street is my world. I find more real in the world that I'm in than I do the tinsel. And the real world is the one I have to deal with every day. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. You're about to miss some real killers, every, every, real killers, every, every, real, real. Albert Fish, with your life, Freddy Krueger, Hannibal X and the new girls, wasn't one or two or three, four, but more, and what made him real sick, before he did, he would stick some needles in his dick, the son of Sam, David Berkowitz would shoot any woman in What's going on all you beautiful bastards and all you beautiful people that have a father in your life? Welcome back to Chromatic Distortion. I'm your host, as always, Corey Caesar. This is episode 29 and the third installment in the Serial Killer Edition. The Gray Man, the Moon Maniac, the Brooklyn Vampire, and even the Boogeyman were just some of this dude's popular titles. In this episode, we talk about the real Hannibal Lecter. Hamilton, Howard, Albert, Fish, the Werewolf, of wisteria now before we start our little story though and this is a really good episode to actually mention this i just want to remind everybody that since 1949 the united states has recognized may as mental health awareness month nearly 450 million people worldwide are currently living with a mental illness yet nearly two-thirds of people with a known mental illness never seek treatment let's break the stigma associated with mental illness let's reach out to those around us, let's share our stories, and remind each other that there are services available, and it's okay to not be okay, and that they're not alone. Um, so let's talk about our mentally unstable person here um, in the bad in the bad condena- uh, condemnation of, uh, of the word, right, of the mental illness. And our story begins with Edward Budd, who was an 18-year-old, and this guy was determined to make something of himself and kind of just uh, escape the desperate poverty um, of his parents. They They were a very poor family. And on May 25th in 1928, he put out himself a little classified ad in the Sunday edition of the New York World. That's how you did it back then. And it read... Young man, 18, wishes, position, and country. Edward Budd, 406 West 15th Street. Now, this Edward Budd dude was eager to work and contribute to the well-being of his family. That's how you did it. Uh, the kids went and worked, brought money home to the, to the family. Now, trapped in this dirty, stinking, crowded city in a miserable tenement with his father, mother, and four younger siblings, he basically just wanted to get out of the city, go to the country where the air was fresh and clean, and just kind of live his own life like most 18-year-old kids want to do, right? Uh, On the following Monday, Edward's mother, Delia, answered the door, and there was this elderly man chilling there. He introduced himself as Frank Howard, claimed to be a farmer from Farmingdale, Long Island, who wanted to uh, interview Edward about that job, about that newspaper ad. Now, Delia sent her five-year-old Beatrice to get her brother, who was chilling at his friend's house um, nearby. Now, the old man, 
or uh, reportedly like kind of gleamed at Beatrice and gave her a nickel. While they waited for uh, Edward, the mom, you know, she got a chance to sit down and take a uh, take a take a good look at this old dude. Um, she claimed he had a very kindly face, um, and that was framed by gray hair and accented by a large drooped gray mustache. Dude was rocking that taint tickler. He explained to Miss Bud that he had earned his living for uh, for decades as like a, a t- an interior de- uh, decorator in the city, but then retired to a farm he had bought with uh, with all the money he had saved from that job. Claimed that he had like six children that he was raising by himself um, because his wife dipped out like uh, a decade before. Now, with the help of his his uh, children. He also had five farmhands and a Swedish cook. Um, And he claimed that his farm was pretty successful. He had several hundred chickens, a half dozen dairy cows. But one of his farmhands was getting ready to dip out and move. So he needed someone to kind of replace this guy, which is why he was responding to Edward's ad. Now, right about this time, Edward comes in and he meets Mr. Howard, who remarked at the boy's size and stature and his strength. And Edward assured the old man he wasn't just strong, he was a hard worker. Mr. Howard offered him a a pretty decent $15 a week, which Edward accepted. Um, And this Howard character even agreed to hire Willie, Edward's closest friend. Now, Mr. Howard had to leave, apparently, though, for an appointment. He promised to come back on Saturday to pick these boys up. Now, the boys, they're pretty thrilled, obviously, right? Um, And the parents were also happy that a good position had come so quickly based on Edward's little modest ad in the paper. Uh, Nothing big, right? And and this was a pretty good job. Came pretty quickly. Um, Saturday, June 2nd, which was supposed to be the the big day, the the day this Howard character was coming back to pick these boys up. But he doesn't show up. Instead, the Bud family receives like this handwritten letter. And this letter basically just says that um, he has been delayed, but he will call in the morning. So the next morning around 11 a.m., Frank Howard shows up at the Bud's apartment bringing gifts of strawberry and fresh creamy pot cheese. You know, he brought over that 1928 fondue. He told them that uh, these beautiful products came direct from his farm. Like, look at these great products we're growing at my farm. And this cheese from my uh, from my cows. Now, Deliah, the mom, persuaded this old man to stay for lunch. For the very first time, Albert Bud Sr. had an opportunity now to sit down and talk with this guy who's hiring his son, you know, going to take him to a, to, a, to a new city in reality. Um, here was this kind, polite old gentleman rapturously describing his 20 acres of farmland. Like, look at my great farm. His friendly crew of farmhands. I got all these great people. And just a simple, hearty country life. It's, it's everything that he knew his son wanted, right? Now, Edward's dad, Albert Sr., was a porter for the Equitable Life Insurance Company, and he kind of had the air of a man perpetually submissive. 
He was basically a beta cuck. Um, he was not too impressed though with the way that this uh, Frank Howard looked, and he because he, he was like in this like rumpled blue shirt um, and, and and suit. But the old man was credible and genteel. Once they sat down for lunch, the door opened up, and in walks in their ten-year-old daughter Gracie, who walks in humming a song. Frank Howard looks at Gracie and says, "Let's uh, let's see how good a counter you are." And he hands her this huge wad of bills to count. Now the impoverished buds they're fat, flabbergasted by how much money this old man was carrying around with him. She counted out, now the guys got to remember, this is 1928, counted out $92.50. Mr. Howard rewarded her by giving her 50 cents to buy candy for herself and her little sister Beatrice. Now, Howard claimed all of a sudden that he would have to come back later in the evening to pick up Edward and Willie because he first had to go to this birthday party at his sister's um, who was throwing it for one of her children, his nie- his niece. So he gave the boys $2 and was like, hey, go to the movies and, uh, and then by the time you get back, I'll be back, right? So if you've been listening to this podcast, the Great Chromatic Distortion Podcast, you should already be sensing uh, sensing the honey dick of brewing in this story. Am I right? So, just as he was about to leave, and here it is, he invites Gracie to go with him to his niece's birthday party. And, of course, he would take good care of her and make sure that Gracie was home before 9 o'clock that evening. You know, no worries. Now, Deliah asks... Where, you know, well, where does your sister live? And he's just like, oh, you know, in this apartment house on Columbus and 137th Street. So the mom, she's not, she's not real sure um, if she should let Grace go. But Albert Sr., beta cook, convinced her that, you know, it'll be, it'll be good for her. It'll be good for Gracie. So poor mom helps Gracie put on her good coat and her uh, gray hat and she follows Gracie and Mr. Howard right outside right out the door and watches them disappear down the street and the evening rolls around 9 p.m. rolls around and lo and behold as we all fucking know already there was no word from Mr. Howard and obviously no sign of Gracie so the next morning young Edward was set down to uh, the police station, right, to report his sister's disappearance, because you get, you know, at least, at least they're going to report it. Now, the uh, the worst thing that police lieutenant Samuel Dribben um, said to the buds was that this address that Frank Howard had given them for his uh, sister's apartment for this little party was fictitious, wasn't real. The old man was a fraud. There was no Frank Howard, no farm in Farmingdale, Long Island, that none of his story was true. So police obviously began the normal investigation activities, right? They checked out everything Frank Howard had told the buds. 
They also had um, the buds go through their rogues gallery, which is basically just that book of photos um, with all the known criminals that you see on TV, right? And had them look at all the uh, the known child molesters, mental patients, etc., right? Um, which came to nothing. There was actually no sign uh, or trace of Gracie. So on June 7th, New York police mailed out 1,000 flyers to police stations throughout the country with a photo of Gracie and a description of Mr. Howard. That's how you did it back then. Now, this activity, along with all this local publicity, it kind of guaranteed an epidemic of Gracie sightings and crank letters because I guess even back then, excuse me, you know, people like to troll the police. Um, But each one of these um, sightings had to be thoroughly investigated by the 20 plus detectives who had been assigned to the case. Now, I think that's, uh, I think it's kind of a lot. 20, 20 detectives in 1929, I, I think is, um, I th- I'm, I'm assuming they were handling this, uh, handling this as a pretty big deal. Now they did have a couple solid clues already at this point. Police found the Western Union office in Manhattan from which, um, Frank Howard had sent that message to the buzz, the one saying he was going to be delayed and, and would, would be there in the morning. Remember? Um, and plus they had the handwritten message, so they had some handwriting samples. And from this writing and grammar, um, it was clear to them that this author um, had some education and some refinement. So he just wasn't some, some bum. Um, now, police also located the push cart from where Howard had bought that pot cheese that he had given the buds. Now, both of the ad- addresses were in East Harlem, which then became obviously the focal point of this intense search and investigation. So the New York police, um, there were not strangers to kidnappings, right? In fact, there was this oddly similar case just a year before. On February 1st, uh, I'm sorry, on February 11th, 1927, four-year-old Billy Gaffney he played in a hallway outside his apartment with his three-year-old neighbor who was also named Billy because you guys got to remember this is 1927 and people weren't naming their kids fucking uh, Blue South and Pilot Inspector. You know what I mean? And 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 I know you're saying Pilot Inspector. That's not real. Yes, it is. Shout out to Jason Lee. Um, but I digress. A 12-year-old neighbor who was babysitting his little sleeping baby sister he went outside this in the hallway to you know to join the two Billies, but he had to run back in real quick because um, his little sister woke up and started crying. But a few minutes later, this older boy he noticed that the two Billies were gone now, so he walked down and told the younger kid's father. After this this desperate search, the father found his his son alone on the top floor of the building, and the the, the little kid claimed. You know, he was up on the roof. So the dad asked, well, where, where, where's Billy Gaffney at? And the boy replied, the boogeyman took him. So the next day, when a platoon of detectives came to investigate the disappearance of this Gaffney boy, they ignored this three-year-old witness because, I mean, he's three, uh, who stuck to his simple explanation. It was... The boogeyman. 
at first, the police, they kind of, they didn't really know what to think. So they kind of just thought the boy had kind of wandered outside into some of the factory buildings in the neighborhood or possibly had fallen into the Ganawas Canal a few blocks away. Um, people in the community, though, organized a search, and the canal was even dredged, but there was just no sign of this Billy Gaffney boy. Eventually, someone finally listened to this little three-year-old boy who gave them the description of the boogeyman, and he basically just told him that it was an old man with a gray hair and, once again, that gray mustache. But the police still paid no attention to this description, and they didn't even uh, connect the dots um, to a crime that had actually been committed by a, quote, gray man a few years earlier. So in 1924, eight-year-old Francis McDonald was um, playing on his front porch in the pastoral uh, uh, Charlton Woods section of Staten Island. His mother... Um, she was just chilling nearby, nursing her infant daughter, and she saw this gaunt elderly man with gray hair and mustache just in the middle of the street. So she was just, you know, staring at this strange, shabby old man who was constantly clenching and unclenching his fist and mumbling to himself. The man just, like, tipped his dusty hat at her and disappeared down the street. Later that afternoon, this old man was then seen again watching Francis and four other boys playing some baseball. So the old man calls out to Francis. He's like, hey, dude, come over here. The other boys, they continue to play. And a few minutes later, both the old man and Francis disappeared. A neighbor noticed a boy who kind of looked like Francis um, walking that afternoon into a, uh, into a wooded area with some elderly man who was great hair, right? The disappearance, though, of this Francis boy was not noticed until he didn't show up for dinner. And his father just so happened to be a policeman, and he organized a search. And they found the boy in the woods under some branches. Now, he had been horribly assaulted. His clothes had been torn from his body, and he had been strangled with his suspenders. Um, he was beaten so badly that the police doubted that an old man could have done this. Um, someone so old and frail as these people were um, describing could have actually done this much beating to, to even though it was a boy, um, this extensive of a of a mauling. So they they thought maybe he he possibly had an accomplice. In short. Uh, in just short time now, then, uh, Manhattan fingerprint uh, print experts and police photographers were enlisted in the case, as well as 250 planes closemen. That's a huge investigation, definitely for back then. So this huge manhunt yielded several promising suspects. There was just one issue with all these suspects. None of them looked like the gray-haired, mustached old man. And this uh, gray-haired, uh, mustached old man, his face was burned forever in the memory of Anna McDonald, who was that lady with her titty out feeding her child. And she said, quote, He came shuffling down the street, mumbling to himself, making queer motions with his hands. I'll never forget those hands. I shuddered when I looked at them. 
how they opened and shut, opened and shut, opened and shut. I saw him look towards Francis and the others. I saw his thick gray hair, his drooping gray mustache. Everything about him seemed faded and gray. Now, despite this, uh, the massive efforts of these 250 police and the community, the quote-unquote gray man just vanished into thin air, never to be seen. So now we have, at this point in the story, three known disappearance, um, disappearances, right, going back the last few years, but no one is connecting the dots to any of them being related. So now by November of 1934, the bug case, the Gracie bug case, was officially still open, All that, although nobody really expected it to be solved. Only one man, so remember we started with 50, we have 50 detectives on this case. Only one man, William F. King, uh, continued to actually pursue it. And every once in a while, this King dude, he would just plan a phony story about a break in the case with this guy, Walter Winchell, who claims, you know, I'm going to say claims to be a journalist because obviously this is some shoddy-ass journalism. And on November 2nd, 1934, uh, Winchell takes the bait again. And he writes, I checked on the Grace Bud mystery. She was eight when she was kidnapped about six years ago. And it is safe to tell you that the Department of Missing Persons will break the case, or they expect to, in four weeks. Dude's so shoddy, he gives out a fucking timetable. Hey, man, it's, the case has been open for six years. Four weeks, though, we got it. Gotcha. Now, um, maybe this planning of stories worked. Maybe it didn't. Maybe they're unrelated. Maybe it's a coincidence. Who knows? But ten days later, um, Delia Bud, she actually receives a letter. Um, but... Her lack of education, and I'm going to say in this case, fortunately, prevented her from reading this letter. Now, her son Edward, he can read, so he does. And as he reads this, he runs out the door and runs straight to Detective King. And this letter was singularly barbarous. And this is the real letter. My dear Miss Bud. In 1994, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he had two others, went ashore, and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At this time, there was famine in China. Meat of any kind was from $1 to $3 a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that children... Under 12 were sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go to any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body and sold as veal cutlet, brought the highest price. John stayed there so long he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven. Took them to his home, stripped them naked, tied them in a closet, then burned everything they had. Several times every day and night he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. 
First, he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and, of course, the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except the head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, boiled, broiled, fried, and stewed. The little boy was next, went the same way. At that time, I was living at 409 East 100th Street, near right side. He told me so often how good human flesh was, I made up my mind to taste it. On Sunday, June the 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street, brought you pot cheese, strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat in my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said yes, she could go. I took her to an empty house in Westchester I'd already picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in the closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run down the stairs. I grabbed her and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked, how she did kick, bite, and scratch. I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take the meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though I could have if I wished. She died a virgin. What a fucking morbidly fucked up letter. That's disgusting. And how, and how crazy to receive that letter after your, your daughter's been missing, right? Six years and you receive that letter. <clears throat> this, this letter was so morbidly fucked up that nobody actually wanted to believe that it was even true. And it, it was had to be just some some ravings of some perverted sadistic cuck right but detective king realized right off the bat the details of his meeting with the buds uh and grace were accurate you know with the cheese and shit and, and just all the correspondence it lined up and also the handwriting on this horrible letter was identical to the letter that the elderly kidnapper um, had written for the Western Union Messenger six years earlier saying he was going to be late. But this envelope had an important clue on it, the new one. It had a, a, a small um, hexagonal emblem which had the letters NYPCBA, which stood for the New York Private Chauffeurs um, Benevolent Association. Now, with the cooperation of the president of this association, he, um, he called like this emergency meeting. Uh, all the members show up. Um, in the meantime, um, while they're uh, getting this meeting together, the police checked all the handwritten membership forms trying to find a match to this Frank Howard. Then uh, Detective King asked all the members, who at this point had passed all them handwritten tests, um, no matches, to report anybody who had taken um, the stationery that would have that emblem on it. A young janitor actually came forward, I mean that he had taken a couple of sheets of paper um, and a few of these envelopes, but he had left them 
in his old rooming house at 200 East 52nd Street. Now, the landlady of this rooming house was shocked when she was giving Frank Howard's description because he sounded just like the old man who lived there for two months. But this old man had just checked out of her room a few days earlier, so he was already gone. Now, this former tenant, though, called himself Albert H. Fish. Fortunately for everybody involved, except for Albert H. Fish, uh, he told her to hold this letter that he was expecting from his son, who worked for the Civilian Conservation Corps in uh, North Carolina. Now, his son regularly sent him some cash flow um, to his old dad. On December 13, 1934, the landlord calls up Detective King. She's like, yo, um, Albert Fish is here, and he's looking for his letter. So Detective King rushes over there, and he walks in the house, and here's this old man sitting with a teacup, and he asks, are you Albert Fish? And Albert Fish stands up and nods and proceeds to pull out a, a razor blade. He's going to fucking knife, dude, right? He's going to knife you, bro. What makes you think I won't cut you? And uh, a tussle ensues. Now, Detective King ends up winning this confrontation because you got to remember this is a decrepit old man and Albert Fish is arrested and he subsequently makes a gruesome confession to the Gracie Bud murder, which we are now going to turn um, the episode into. We're going to start diving into Albert Fish's own words and, and the, the confession here, which, uh, fair warning, is not for the faint of heart. So, this confession would be heard by a lot of law enforcement officials and psychiatrists alike. Now, a severely edited version of this confession would appear in newspapers. It was an odyssey of perversion and unspeakable depravity, which seemed pretty unbelievable until detail after detail was corroborated. What was more amazing is when you considered how decrepit and harmless Fish appeared. He was a, he was no bullshit, um, a stooped, frail-looking old man. He was 130 pounds. He was five foot five. He was a tiny man. Now, Detective King took the initial confession. Now, Fish told him that in the summer of 1929, he was overcome by what he called a bloodthirst. Um, his need to kill. And this is how Albert Fish describes his crime. He claims when he answered Edward Budd's ad for employment, it was the young man, not his sister Gracie, that he intended to lure to um, a remote location. And his plan was to actually restrain him and, restrain him and cut off his dick. Um, he was going to castrate him, leaving him to bleed to death. Now, after he left the Budd's house the first time, he actually went and purchased the tools he would need to murder and manipulate the two boys. He bought himself a cleaver, a saw, and a butcher knife. Now, he wrapped these implements of destruction up into a bundle, which he actually left at a newspaper stand uh, 
before he went back to the Bud's home for that uh, second and final time with them strawberries and fucking uh, pot cheese, right? Um, now, when he saw the young Edward, who was the size of a grown, you know, a full-grown man, and his friend Willie, this old delusional fuck convinced himself that, you know, he was going to just be able to overpower these two boys um, and then have his way with them. Now, I'm not real sure, excuse me, if that uh, if you'd have won that battle, and that might have changed this entire story altogether, but that's not what happened. Excuse me again, because it was only after seeing Gracie that uh, you know walk through that door humming that song that he changed his mind and his plans, and it was her now that he desperately wanted to kill and eat. With the unsuspecting Gracie in tow, he stops back at this newspaper stand. Uh, to pick up his bundle of, of tools, right, that he bought um, before taking a train to the Bronx and then to a village of Worthington and Westchester. Now, for Gracie, he only buys a one-way ticket. Um, according to Fish, Gracie was enthralled with this 40-minute ride into the countryside because she only had been uh, out of the city twice in her life prior to this. At the station in Worthington, um, Fish was actually so absorbed in his like monstrous plan that he left his bundle of tools on the train. Now, unfortunately for Gracie, she notices and reminds him to go grab his package and bring it along. You, you know, unknowingly what she just had him go grab. Um, so apparently they walk along a remote road until they reached an abandoned two-story building which was named Wisteria Cottage, which was in the midst of some uh, uh, a nice little wooded area. Now, Gracie kind of entertained herself outside, picking various flowers. Fish went up to the second floor bedroom, opened up his bundle of tools, and took off his clothes, as we heard from the letter. Then he called um, Gracie to come upstairs, with the wildflowers she had uh, uh, gathered, he claimed arranged in like a bouquet, she came into the house and up to the bedroom. He says when she saw him naked, she screamed for her mother and tried to escape, but Fish grabbed her by the throat and choked her to death. He claimed he was sexually aroused by the act of strangling her. He propped her head up on an old paint can and decapitated her catching most of the blood in a paint can. Afterwards, he just threw the bucket of blood out into the yard. He undressed the headless child, then he went back to her body and cut it in two with a butcher knife and cleaver. Parts of her body he took with him, he claims, wrapped in newspaper. The, le the rest he just left there until he returned several days later when he just threw the portions of her body over a stone wall in the back of the house. Because I guess nobody would ever notice, you know, human remains just tossed out the back of a house in 1929. And uh, right, right along with uh, the tools, because he disposed of those the same way. Now, after his confession, Dr. King had just one final question. What caused him to do this horrible thing? Which Fish replied, You know, I never could account for it. 
Captain John Stein asked him why he had written this uh, this letter to the Buds, and Fish responded that he didn't know why, that I just had a mania for writing. Now, that day um, of the confession, the police went to Wisteria Cottage and recovered the remains of Gracie. Albert Fish actually stood nearby and reportedly was complete without emotion of any kind. That night at 10 p.m., Fish was then interrogated by um, Assistant District Attorney P. Francis Morrow. When Morrow asked Fish why he murdered Gracie, he explained that a sort of bloodthirst had overwhelmed him, um, but claimed once he was done, he was overcome with sorrow, claiming he would have given his life within a half hour after he did it to restore her life. You're a fucking liar. Um, Morrow asked if he had raped Gracie and Fish was adamant it never entered his head I don't know one way or another I'm going to say I think he did but that's just my opinion Um, but um, nothing uh, was asked at this time nor did uh, Albert Fish volunteer any information about the cannibalism that was mentioned in his letter to the Buds. Um, now, I'm not sure if the police considered it too insane to be true, or perhaps they were already um, think that including like these horrible details about cannibalism would kind of bolster the inevitable defense case for insanity. That was, you know, definitely going to come here. Um, so that night, the capture of Albert Fish kind of like leaked to the newspapers, and reporters descended onto the Bud apartment with the news. Um, shortly afterward, Detective King takes Mr. Bud and his son Edward to the police station so they can identify as like, Hey, is this the guy who, you know, who showed up and walked, walked off with your daughter? Now, Edward identifies this dude right away and he screams out, Oh, bastard and dirty son of a bitch. Mr. Bud is surprised when his kid's yelling at him at Fish's like just lack of emotion. And Mr. Bud's like, don't you know me? You know, and Fish is like, yes, you're Mr. Bud. Just just like that. Just no emotion. So Albert Fish, uh, you know, not surprisingly, was no stranger to police, right? His record actually stretched back to 1903 when he had been jailed for grand larceny. Now, since then, he had been arrested six times for various petty crimes, such as uh, sending obscene letters and petty theft. Now, half of those arrests occurred right about the time of Gracie's abduction, but each time these charges were dismissed. And he had also been uh, in and out of mental institutions a couple times in the same time span. When asked about his background, Fish said, quote, I was born May 19, 1870 in Washington, D.C. We lived on B Street, New England, between 2nd and 3rd. My father was Captain Randall Fish, 32nd Degree Mason, and he is buried in the Grand Lodge grounds of the Congressional Cemetery. He was a Potomac River boat captain running from D.C. to Marshall Hall, Virginia. My father dropped dead October 15, 1875 in the old Pennsylvania station where President Garfield was shot, and I was placed in St. John's Orphanage in Washington. I was there till I was nearly nine, and that's where I got started wrong. We were unmercifully whipped. 
I saw boys doing many things they should not have done. I sang in the choir from 1880 to 1884, soprano at St. John's. I came to New York. I was a good painter, interiors or anything. I got an apartment and brought my mother up from Washington. We lived at 76 West 101st Street, and that's where I met my wife. After our six children were born, she left me. She took all the furniture and didn't even leave a mattress for the children to sleep on. I'm still worried about my children. You'd think they'd come visit their old dad in jail, but they haven't. And his kids at this point, I think, uh, ranged from age 21 to 35. So, Albert Fish, at this point in the confession, is facing indictments in Manhattan and Westchester County. First, Westchester County indicted him on the charge of first-degree murder for the murder of Gracie Bud, while Manhattan was preparing an indictment for kidnapping, because that's where she was taken from. Um, meanwhile, while this was taking place, police get another little major, uh, uh, major break in this, in this, in this case. The motorman on the Brooklyn trolley line saw a picture of fish in the newspaper and he came forward to identify fish as this nervous old man that he saw on February 11th, 1927, who was trying to quiet this little boy sitting with him on the trolley. So Joseph Meehan, who's this retired motorman, claims he watched the two carefully. But of course, you know, I didn't say nothing, but I watched them carefully, which is crazy. Like no one ever says anything about anything on a train. But I guess um, I got I me. Mean, I guess you kind of see that now when you see all those videos shit popping off all uh, uh, on a train and no one just says anything. Everyone's kind of like lets the tomfoolery commence. But um, he claims he was watching these two carefully. Uh, the little boy who didn't have a jacket or coat, which he thought was a little suspicious, was crying for his mother continuously and had to be dragged um, by this old man on and off the trolley. The little boy, as it turned out, was um, the kidnapped Billy Gaffney from the second story we talked about. Ultimately, Fish then confesses um, the unspeakable things he did to Billy Gaffney. And this is from Albert Fish again. I brought him to Riker Avenue dumps. There is a house that stands alone, not far from where I took him. I took the boy there, stripped him naked and tied his hands and feet and gagged him with a piece of dirty rag I picked out of the dump. Then I burned his clothes, threw a shoe in the dump. Then I walked back and took the trolley to 59th Street at 2 a.m. and walked home from there. Next day, about 2 p.m., I took tools, a good heavy cat of nine tails, and that's like a, that's like that sex whip for you freaks. Um, it was homemade with a short handle, cut one of my belts in half, slit these halves in six strips about eight inches long. I whipped his bear behind till the blood ran from his legs. I cut off his ears, nose, slit his mouth from ear to ear, gouged out his eyes. He was dead then. I stuck the knife in his belly and held my mouth to his body and drank his blood. I picked up four old potato sacks and gathered a pile of stones. Then I cut him up. I had a grip with me. I put his nose, ears, and a few slices of his belly in the grip. Then I cut him through the middle of his body, just below the belly button. Then, through his legs, about two inches below his behind, I put this in my grip with a lot of paper. I cut off his head, feet, arms hands, and legs below the knee. 
This I put in sacks weighed with stones, tied the ends, and threw them into the pools of slimy water you will see all along the road going to North Beach. Now, during his interviews with police, Fish further confessed, I came home with my meat. I had the front of his body I liked best, his monkey and peewees, which I think he's calling the balls, and a nice little fat behind to roast in the oven and eat. I made a stew out of his ears, nose, pieces of his face and belly. I put onions, carrots, turnips, celery, salt and pepper. It was good. Then I split the cheeks of his behind open, cut off his monkey and peewees, and washed them first. I put strips of bacon on each cheek and his behind. Uh, I put strips of bacon on each cheek of his behind and put them in the oven. Then I picked four onions, and when the meat had roasted about a quarter hour, I poured about a pint of water over it for gravy and put in the onions. At frequent intervals, I basted his behind with a wooden spoon so the meat would be nice and juicy. In about two hours, it was nice and browned, cooked through. I never ate any roast turkey that tasted half as good as his sweet fat little behind did. I ate every bit of the meat in about four days. His little monkey was as sweet as a nut, but his peewees I could not chew. Threw them in the toilet. So that's the confession to the cannibalism for the first time. To the police. Days later, a man from Staten Island comes forward to identify Fish as the man who had tried to lure his then uh, eight-year-old daughter into the woods not far from where Francis O'Donnell was murdered three days later in 1924. That's the, the policeman's boy who was in the woods um, who they found. The girl in her late teens at this point saw him in a cell and recognized him right away and says that's the gray man. So the gray man was now found. Fish was also tied to a 1932 murder of a 15-year-old girl named Mary O'Connor in Far Rockaway. Now, this girl's mauled body was found in some uh, some woods close to a house that Fish had been painting. With all these indictments in different counties, there was very little chance that our Fish was going to be acquitted. His only opportunity to beat the death penalty was to have the alienist, which... um, which are forensic psychologists, in case you didn't know, that's what they call alienists, um, declare him insane. So Dr. Frederick Wortham, in his book, The Show of Violence, describes his first meeting with Albert Fish in his jail cell. And he was shocked at how, quote, meek, gentle, benevolent, and polite Fish was. He says, if you wanted someone to entrust your children to he would be the one you would choose. Now, Fish's attitude towards his situation, though, was one of complete detachment, saying, I have no particular desire to live. I have no particular desire to be killed. It is a matter of indifference to me. I do not think I am altogether right. When Mr. Wortham asked if he meant that um, he was insane, Fish answered, not exactly. I never could understand myself. Psychosis, though, seemed to have galloped through Fish's family history from what Dr. Wortham could ascertain, stating, One paternal uncle suffered 
suffered from a religious psychosis and died in a state hospital. A half-brother also died in a state hospital. A younger brother was feeble-minded and died of um, hydrocephalus, which isn't an STD. It's basically fluid on the brain for a quick description. Um, His mother was held to be very queer and was said to hear and see things. A paternal aunt was considered uh, completely crazy. A brother suffered from chronic alcoholism. Uh, a, uh, a sister had some sort of mental affliction. So um, basically a normal American family today, am I right? Um, so he claims that his real name was Hamilton Fish, named after a distant relative who was President Grant's Secretary of State. But he was always teased about his name, so he ended up taking the name Albert instead. When he was 26 is when he married uh, a young woman of 19, and they had six children. When his youngest was three, she actually ran off with another man, leaving Fish to raise the children. Uh, Subsequently, he married three other times, but those were not technically legal since he had never been divorced from his first wife because she just dipped. Uh, Dr. Wortham considered Fish's unparalleled uh, perversity unique in the annals of psychiatric and criminal literature, writing sadomasochism directed against children, particularly boys, took the lead in his sexually regressive development. Fish told him, quote, I always had a desire to inflict pain on others and have others inflict pain on me. I always seemed to enjoy everything that hurt. Wortham said uh, experiences with excrement of every imaginable kind were practiced by him actively and passively. He took bits of cotton, guys, saturated them with alcohol, inserted them into his rectum, and set them on fire. He also did that to his uh, to his child victims, apparently. Fish confided in Dr. Wortham a long history of preying on children, claiming at least 100. Fish would bribe them with money or candy. We know about their honey dick. He usually chose African-American children, though, because he believed that the police did not pay much attention when they went hurt or missing. Uh... He, he was smart. He never went back to the same neighborhood. He said that he had lived in at least 23 states and each one had killed at least one child, which that number ha- has never been cor- corroborated, just, just for f- um, factual references. Um, sometimes he claims he lost his job as a painter because he was suspiciously connected to these dead or mutilated children. He had a compulsion to write obscene letters and did so frequently, according to Dr. Wortham. Quote, they were not the typical obscene letters based on fantasies and daydreams to supply a vicarious thrill. They were offers to practice his inclinations with the people he wrote his graphic suggestions to. Initially, Dr. Wortham had some concerns about whether um, this dude's lying to him, right? Like he's telling some pretty far, far stories here, like some far tales. You know, maybe this dude's just like making up some stories to kind of boaster uh, what he's been doing. And and this was especially true when he told the psychiatrist that he had been sticking needles into his body for years in the area between the rectum and scrotum, a.k.a. that taint, boy, that sandbar. 
Albert told of doing it to other people also, especially children. At first, he said, he had only stuck these needles in and pulled them out. Then he had stuck the others in so far that he was unable to get them out and they stayed there. So the doctor's like, all right, let's let's x-ray this dude and see. And sure as fucking shit, guys, they x-ray him and they find at least 29 needles stuck in this dude's pelvic region, in his dick. About the age of 55, Fish claims he starts to experience hallucinations and delusions. Uh, He had visions of Christ and his angels. He began to be uh, engrossed in religious speculation about purging himself of iniquities and sins, atonement of physical suffering and self-torture, and human sacrifices. He would go on, this dude would go on endlessly, dude, with quotations from the Bible, but he would like mix them all up with his own sentences, such as, happy is he that taketh thy little ones and dasheth their head against the stones. Now, Fish believed that, uh, that God had ordered him to torment and castrate little boys, and he had actually um, done so number, uh, a number of times. Wortham was amazed as Fish described the horrible cannibalism of Billy Gaffney's body. He said, His state of mind while he described these things in minute detail was a peculiar mixture. He spoke in a matter-of-fact way, like a housewife describing her favorite methods of cooking. The idea that Fish was suffering from uh, some religious psychosis was a given um, as far as Dr. Wortham was concerned. Now, I'm going to go out on a, on a limb and say that a lot of this was also brought on by uh, by infection, you know, due to homie having, what, 29 metal needles in his fucking taint in the 1920s where um, little hygiene and sterilization was taking place, right? Let's just ask... Uh, Let's ask somebody about that. Let's ask Moses and that burning bush and a 40-year walk in the desert eating crackers about some crazy shit going on, right, in people's heads. Uh, Now, Fish's children had seen him hitting himself on his new body with a a nail-studded paddle until he was covered with blood. They also saw him stand alone on a hill with his hands raised, shouting, I am Christ. Fish told him, quote, what I did must have been right or an angel would have stopped me just as an angel stopped Abraham in the Bible, which for a reference to the listeners in the Bible, Abraham was actually stopped from sacrificing his son by an angel. Dr. Wortham, the defense's alienist, remember, believed that Fish was legally insane, uh, writing, uh, writing, I characterized his personality as introverted and extremely infantilistic. I outlined his abnormal mental makeup and his mental disease, which I diagnosed as paranoid psychosis. Because Fish suffered from delusions and particularly was so mixed up about the questions of punishment, sin, atonement, religion, torture, self-punishment, he had a perverted 
a distorted, if you will, and insane knowledge of right and wrong. His test was that if it had been wrong, he would have been stopped as Abraham was stopped by an angel. Now, Wortham believes that Fish had actually killed 15 children um, and mutilated about 100 others from what he gathered from his talks with this guy. Two other defense alienists testified that Fish was insane. The four uh, alienists who were called by the prosecution testified that Fish was sane. One of them was held... Um, um, but one of these dudes was head of the psychiatric hospital where Fish had been detailed for observation a couple years after the Bud murder took place where he had been judged both harmless and sane. So I'm just going to throw out there as a little bit of conflict of interest. Like a few years before anyone knew he was a murderer, before anyone was arrested, this dude, you judged him both harmless and sane, yet here we are. So... The trial now of Albert Fish, and we're going to hit on this just real quick, for the premeditated murder of Gracie Budd began on Monday, March 11th, 1935, in White Plains, New York, in Justice Frederick P. Close's court. Uh, uh, Chief Assistant District Attorney Albert F. Gallagher was in charge of the prosecution, and James Dempsey was the defense attorney. Now, Dempsey planned to attack the competence of the Belvenue Hospital um, uh, physiologists who had observed Fish in 1930 and declared him sane. He also planned to establish that Fish was suffering from lead colic, a dementia offered suffered by house painters, or you know maybe um, those nickel-coated needles that were uh, uh, in his tank. That probably, uh, you know, had some affection occurring there. Or maybe it was a combination of both, you, you know. Uh, the prosecution's key strategy was summarized early in trial. Gallagher stating, now in this case, there is a presumption of sanity. The proof, briefly, will be that this defendant is legally sane and that he knows the difference between right and wrong and that the nature and quality of his acts and that he is not defective mentally, that he had a wonderful memory for a man his age, that he is complete, uh, that he has complete orientation as to his immediate surroundings, that there is no mental deterioration, but that he is sexually abnormal, that he is known medically as a sex pervert or a sex psychopath, that his acts were abnormal, but that when he took this girl from her home, on the third day of June 1928, and in doing that act, and in procuring the tools uh, with which he killed her, bringing her up here to Westchester County, and taking her into this empty house surrounded by woods in the back of it, he knew it was wrong to do that, and that he is legally sane and should answer for his acts, and I actually agree. Defense Attorney Dempsey he focused on Fish's strange life and um, self-flagellation with nail-studded paddles and needles. Then he brought up Fish's competence as a father and his love for his children, stating, 
In spite of all these brutal, criminal, and vicious proclivities, there is another side to this defendant. He has been a very fine father. He never once in his life laid a hand on one of his children. He says grace at every meal in his house. In 1917, when the youngest one of his six children was three, his wife left him. And from that time down until shortly before the Gracie Bud murder in 1928, he was uh, a mother and father to those children. What a trash ass defense. Like, oh, uh, yeah, um, he's a good father. He was a good father. He never hit his kids. You know, he says grace at every meal. Thanks, God. Uh, uh, his wife left him. So, how can we blame him for murdering and eating children, right? So, he closed his remarks by reminding the jury that uh, it was up to the prosecution to prove that a man who killed and ate children was sane, which is a. Uh, a slightly better defense. Now, Gracie's parents and brother Albert Jr. also testified. Now, the defense seemed determined to make the point that both uh, Deliah and Albert Sr. Uh, gave their consent to Gracie going to this birthday party with Fish. Um, when it came time for her father to testify, he was overcome with emotion and began to weep loudly. Beta Cook, um, you let her go. You talked mommy into letting her go, remember, guy? Um to this dude you didn't know for but for fucking an hour uh when it came time uh on the third day of the trial over the strenuous objections of the defense attorney a box of grace's remains were brought into the courtroom as evidence while detective king recreated from fish's confession how the girl was killed then gallagher reached into the box and held out the small skull of the dead girl it was a very dramatic moment according to reports and then dempsey immediately sought a mistrial which of course was denied but what that was that was actually powerful what, what a powerful moment that had to be in that court um uh, dempsey focused on the cannibalism issue as a central part of the insanity defense it was clear that um, he was trying to establish that fish had eaten parts of the girl's body, something that, you know, no sane person would do. But he was unsuccessful kind of in establishing and proving that fish actually did what he said um, he did with her body. Because how do you prove he actually ate these people? The prosecution doesn't actually have to prove that. They just got to prove you murder them. Um, now, fish appeared to be completely indifferent throughout the trial, although at one point. He expressed to his attorney that he did have a desire to live because, because, quote, God still has work for me to do. Meaning he was getting a little antsy, like he wanted to go out there and fucking murder again is what it sounds like to me. Now, Dempsey put several of uh, Fish's children on the stand to testify to some of his bihar, uh, bizarre behaviors, right? That self-flagellation, um, the sticking needles in his body as well as some of his religious delusions. They also testified that he was, you know, a good father and always provided for them and never physically abused them. Again, who gives a fuck? Um, to further demonstrate Fish's um, strange behavior, Dempsey called to the stand uh, a woman who had received some, uh, several obscene letters from Albert Fish. The courtroom was clear to the women because I guess in 1929, women can't hear things like this. And they read the obscene correspondence. Another defense witness was 
this girl named Mary Nicholas, who was actually Fish's 17-year-old stepdaughter from one of his other marriages. And she described this game that her and her brothers used to play. And basically this game was he would go into the room, he'd get like, he'd put on these brown trunks, uh, come out uh, with this like um, a, a paint stick, which is like a, a stir for paint. He'd have them sit on their back, on his back, uh, you know, with the, with their heads facing his butt. He would uh, tell them to put some fingers up. He would try to guess. He would always guess wrong. A lot of times even saying more fingers than they had. And if they were, uh, if he guessed right, then um, nothing would happen, uh, nothing would happen, right? But if he didn't guess right, then they would have to hit him with as many fingers as he would hold up. So basically, um, he would hold, they would hold some fingers. He'd be like, 13. They'd be like, no, it's a seven. He'd be like, okay, spank me seven times. So, you know, some bizarre behavior. Um, Eventually, Dempsey had a chance to attack the prosecution psychiatrist, Dr. Charles Lambert, who, after a three-hour interview with Fish, pronounced him a psychopathic personality without a psychosis. Dempsey asked Lambert, quote, assume that this man has not only killed this girl, but took her flesh to eat it. Will you state that that man could for nine days eat that flesh and still not have a psychosis. Lambert answered, well, there's no accounting for taste, Mr. Dempsey. Dempsey persisted, asking, tell me how many cases in your experience that you have seen people who actually ate human feces. Lambert answers casually, oh, I know individuals prominent in society, one in particular that we all know who used it as a side dish in his salad. Now, if that's not a fucking reference to tossing salad, eating that booty hole, eating that poo, that poo-poo, I don't, I'm not sure what it is, but I'm pretty sure he just said we know some dude who tosses some salad. Uh, uh, Dempsey had a little better luck, though, with one of the other defense alienists who got to admit... Um, could see signs of psychosis in Fish's behavior. Now, this trial lasted only 10 days, and the jury took less than one hour to reach its verdict. And, of course, he was found guilty as charged, as he should have been. Um, Fish was not originally happy with this verdict, but then the prospect of being electrocuted also had its, like, appeal to him. A Daily News reporter wrote, His watery eyes gleamed at the thought of being burned by a heat more intense than the flames with which he often seared his flesh to gratify his lust. What now that's a good journalist. We talked about that shy journalism before. Uh what a great line. Let's let's that's great writing. Let's let's read that again. His watery eyes gleamed at the thought of being burned by a heat more intense than the flames with which he often seared his flesh to gratify his lust. Fish then thanked the judge for a sentence of death by electrocution, and on January 16, 1936, Albert Fish was executed by electric, uh, electrocution, which, in my opinion, was a light sentence. Dude should have been jacked, dragged through the streets, beaten, murdered. He should have been castrated. You call me brutal, I don't give a fuck. You, you, you treat children like that, you should be brutally murdered yourself. Um, but that's where we're going to end it. Um, it's going to end this episode. If you do want to learn more though about Albert Fish, a more in-depth 
look at Albert Fish, um, cause I didn't touch on everything. Um, I recommend a book called deranged and just Google deranged Albert, Albert Fish. You can't miss it. Um, it's probably the most comprehensive book on him, but, uh, that will end this episode. I do hope you have enjoyed it. Make sure to follow the Instagram page at Chromatic Distortion Podcast for all the updates and tomfoolery coming your way. Feel free to slide in those DMs with requests, questions, or critiques. Also, make sure to su- subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform so you never miss an episode. Like always, the world is full of good people. If you can't find one, be one. I'll catch you on the flip side. You have just witnessed the lyrical stylistics of chromatic distortion. The street is my world. I find more real in the world that I'm in than I do the tinsel. And the real world is the one I have to deal with every day. Believe me, if I started murdering people, There'd be none of you left. Nobody understands me, understand we on totally different mentalities, a level that you never can be, and that's free. So-called civilization called natural habits, savage and tried to erase it. You can't pull the killer instincts out of a lion. It's like keeping a broken home from crying. Stop me if I'm lying. You're about to miss some real killers, every, every real killers, evident, every, every real. Real. Albert Fish with your life, Freddy Krueger, Hannibal X and Little Girls Wasn't one or two or three, four, but more And what made him real sick? Before he did, he would stick some needles in his dick The son of Sam, David Berkowitz would shoot any woman and man Coupled up in a car with a 22 in hand A man with a twisted plan, obsessed like Stan a fan Edmund Kemper, the co-ed killer dude Picked up hitchhikers from UC Santa Cruz Blasted him, point blank, pulled some necrophilia Dumping the body parts in caramel, said the media Jack the Ripper, targeted whores and prostitutes Crept in the dark and ripped them apart his trademark Was severing off the left breast The bobbies up in London never caught this prince of death The Ted Bundy, a sophisticated law student Had a thing for young, thin, pretty boss students We'll creep in your house and whack you while you're sleeping Fuck you while you're bleeding Fuck you till you stop breathing Ed Green, all this schizophrenic Believe that the voices up in the minds What made them do the damage Raid on all the women, scan them and wear their face on But Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw is based on Worship the devil and that's what made him become a monster Women walking in the dark alone When actually alone and husbands be like She never made it home What about Pogo the Clown? John Wayne Gacy at about Dozen teen boys buried under his house He would place ads up in the newspaper And anyone that showed up would meet their maker Identify New Orleans man with a mask and an axe and real Jason for your ass will break in the back door during his killing seasons and chop folks to pieces for no reason. Charles Manson was Jesus for the evil, manipulated people, made people do his evil deeds too. Satanically sacrificing his girlfriends with the devil's swastika marked upon his forehead. Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibal, the man eating animal, the raw life Hannibal. Drugged his victims and gay boys Had his way and ate the remains from the brain jaws I ain't glamorizing shit Just helping you and realizing shit 
people like this do exist So why do you live with and who do you leave your kids with? They didn't agree with O.J. Simpson, but I understood They didn't agree with Scott Peterson, but I understood them Them two black snipers from Washington, I understood them Say what? I understood them Say what? I understood them They didn't agree with Trench Coat Mafia, but I understood them They didn't agree with X-Rated, but hey, I understood They didn't agree with Lucifer, but hey, I understood them Say what? I understood them Say what? I understood them